Welcome to the Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. I'm your host, Nabil Hanan, Managing Director at NetSpy. This is a podcast sponsored by NetSpy as a place to share best practices and trends in the world of cybersecurity and vulnerability management. Portions of this interview will appear in print on the NetSpy executive blog. To find out more, go to www.netspy.com slash agent of influence. This is an episode in a series of interviews with industry leaders and security gurus. And it's a pleasure to have with me today one of my great friends, Roshan Popal. Hi, Roshan. Hi, Nabil. How are you? I'm well. Hope you're doing well, too. Roshan is a technology and security executive with a proven track record for customer service delivery and information security risk migration. Roshan is known for building, developing, and leading high-performance cloud, IT, and security teams on a global scale. Utilizing his strong business acumen and broad technical knowledge, he strategically aligns IT and security services for organizational success. Roshan currently serves as the SVP of Cloud Customer Operations and Chief Information Security Officer at MicroStrategy, which is a business intelligence and analytics firm with headquarters in the DC metro area. Prior to MicroStrategy, he led the global IT and information security function for Sigital Incorporated. So Roshan, why don't we get started? How did you get started with security? Thank you, Nabil, for the intro. I got started uh, with security when I was attending SUNY Buffalo. I, I went to SUNY Buffalo to get my computer science degree. And I remember when we got there our first year, we had dial-up. And uh, I, I got an IRC, which was the internet relay chat, to connect with friends and family throughout the world. And I slowly realized that I can change my identity on IRC and then do a lot of powerful things because everything was identity-based. And if I was able to change my identity, I was able to get admin roles across different channels in IRC, which got me into a little bit of uh, hot water with the CISO. Uh, his name was Harvey Axelrod at Buffalo that time. Uh, but uh, that's really when I got started in security and then started you know, working my way up from there. So that's interesting. You had a CISO at the university then, uh, which was a, a while ago. That, that's unique. It's very unique. He was, yeah, he was a CISO, I believe. And uh, I remember when I first went to his office, he's like, what are you doing? And uh, I got across with him, like, what did I do wrong? You know, I, I went in IRC and I got some power. And uh, he said, well, you're not supposed to do that. I said, well, why not? How come you guys don't prevent it? You don't prevent it. You allow me to change my identity freely and openly. What have I done wrong? And uh, that answer did not sit well with him. He did not uh, like the fact that they lacked technical controls to prevent what I was doing, but wanted to hold me responsible for what I had done because the, the admins on the local Buffalo channels complained that I was basically taking over their channels. Well, IRC is such a unique solution for back in the day. I remember when I used to go on channels and you could be anybody. That's the beauty of the internet back then, right? Was It wasn't necessarily traceable back to you. There was no specific identifier about who you are, but it's your handle and you could be on channels and you could pretend to be whoever you wanted to be. So I know you have an interesting story about your interaction with egg drop bots on IRC. Do you want to share a little bit about, about that story? Yes. <laughs> My journey with the CISO didn't end with the first interaction. You know, as I continued to attend university, we went from dial-up to high-speed internet. And we had university Unix systems, and uh, and they were very powerful. 
and some of the channels that, that I was running, I needed egg drop bots to maintain uh, admin privileges on that channel. Because if you left those channels, as you know, Nabil, you lost your admin credentials. So you had to stay there. You had to have someone proxy to stay there and, and basically serve the channel. And I was too poor to purchase Unix accounts at that point. You know, I was a, I was a poor student, but I wanted to be able to run egg drop bots within the university systems. And so when I when I looked at the egg drop bots, I had to first compile them. I had to learn how to compile code on university systems. The second thing that I did was I was trying to change the process names. So when the university admins ran a, a, a process list, for example, a PS, if you call it that, they would see a normal process such as Pine. If you remember, Pine was the way they checked email for all those old guys, right? <laughs> Pine and uh, Emacs or, or, or VI. It was the, the outlook of... Oh, yeah, it was the outlook of the 80s. It was awesome. <laughs> you know, you got a little, just the matrix type of interface, green and black. It was lovely. So so the idea for me was to compile these extra bots and uh, be able to hide them in the university system and and, and, and continue to operate them. And, and for the most part, I was successful for that. So from learning how to compile these bots and, and code, you know, what else did you do to evolve your expertise of just automation, coding, and just infrastructure security as a whole? Yeah. So it was very interesting because playing with egg draw bots was so much fun. It was, it was all, all C code, if I remember correctly, or C++ code. I was a computer science student. Majority of my courses were compiling code, writing C, C++ code. And so it really and easily translated into understanding software, understanding how software is built, understanding, you know, buffer overflows, understanding memory, understanding the disk, understanding, you know, how files are opened. And that, once you understood the foundation of how a system operates, an operating system, for example, or the internet or TCP sockets, et cetera, I slowly built on that. And what, what, when I graduated from SUNY Buffalo in 1999, I attended about three years. I, I got a job at Quest Communications as a Linux Windows admin. And I continued to attend university locally in Fairfax, Virginia, and George Mason. And I enrolled in a security program. It was a master's in information system, but the focus was on security. And uh, I had some great professors at George Mason University, Professor Sandu, who had written RBAC, and Professor Jajodia, who was a very strong database professor. And they basically explained security to me very, very formally on how security now sits on top of all these constructs that I had learned from the code onto the operating system level, the memory, the disk, et cetera. And soon after Quest, within 10 months, I joined AOL in 2000. And AOL in 2000 was like the Google of its time, right? It was, it was one of the best places to be for a system administrator, for an IT practitioner. And there I saw systems at scale on a global level. And I met some of the smartest people. I, I remember one guy we met, he rewrote the FTP protocol because we could not move enough files fast enough. Uh, map files. We had acquired MapQuest, so we couldn't. He rewrote FTP protocol. He was one of the smartest individuals I had worked with. And uh, that's where I started really looking at infrastructure as a whole. And while learning security at nighttime, formally, I started to apply that to my day-to-day -day job on how I can focus on automation, on security, on coding, on how everything interconnects, how TCP works, uh -huh. how, 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 and the different layers of the OSI model and how they all build on top of each other because you saw it in practice. Uh -huh. 
Another thing that you highlight, which is something a lot of people today, I think, miss is people go to university and they have specific things you learn during your formal curriculum and your formal study. But there are also a lot of different things that you end up having to teach yourself that's self-taught. And, it, it, you know, the extracurriculars and, and doing things outside of your curriculum is almost equally as important. You know, I actually think that's more important because you get to learn things that are less formal, but you can learn and teach yourself things that are new and things that really interest you as well. You're absolutely right, Nabil. And it's not just university. I think it's even at work, right? When we work at large corporations, whether it's an AOL or a Google or whatnot, we generally do the same thing day in and day out. And for us to progress our careers and learn new technologies, new skills, we have to invest time in learning. And some jobs allow you some time to do that during the workday, but other jobs are very, very busy and you don't have time. So you have to invest that time in furthering your career yourself. But definitely for university students who are looking to get into security or other areas of technology, they have to drive their own career. University is going to provide them a framework and a few electives on what they should be doing, but getting the right certifications to get their foot in the door, understanding things behind the scenes, as you said, having that that desire, right, that, that, that drive to learn is, is really what uh, I think will differentiate successful technologists from the mediocre ones. If you had to give one piece of advice to someone, let's say beyond the student phase, but they're early on in their career in security, let's say a year to five years into their career, what advice would you give them? Or if I phrase it differently, what advice would you give yourself if you went back to when you were a year to five years into your career? I, I think be eager to learn. Be eager to learn as much as you can, especially in your uh, younger professional days, be able to absorb what you can. I think also learn things fundamentally. That's one thing I've always, every, every, every time I learn something, I want to learn it formally and fundamentally. Because if I learn the fundamentals of something and I can explain that concept to someone very easily, then I know that I can actually do that job easily. That's great. Well, I have a unique question for you because I know that in your past life, you were the director of IT at Sigital, and that's where we worked together and that's where we actually met. You know, being a director of IT is hard enough as it is. How much different is it or what is it really like to be the director of IT at a security consulting firm where everyone around you is potentially trying to do things that break almost every IT policy out there? That's a very interesting question, Nabil. You know, I took that job just because of the fact that it was an IT security consulting firm. I had done a lot of work. As I said, I had my master's in security. I had worked in different roles, some more security focused, some less security focused, some focused more on infrastructure, some on automation. But the reason I took that job was really because it was a security firm. And that's what I, I told uh, the CEO at that, that time in the interview. It's very interesting, right? When you work at a security firm and you're head of IT or security, it's almost like being a target at a military base, right? Like you have this target on your back and you're walking around and anyone can shoot at you because they're allowed to. They're, they're allowed to. I mean, if you remember, uh, we would get system compromises all the time. We're like, who authorized you to do this? They're like, oh, we just found this and we want to tell you about it. You create an appreciation for it because you realize that your colleagues mean well. However, some of the less experienced colleagues, you have to kind of ensure that they understand the protocol of how to do ethical hacking is what we'll call it, is say, hey, you know, you can do this. And if you really want to do it in production, let me create a parallel copy of it for you and you can do it after hours. And, and we'll turn off our sirens, for lack of a better word, so no noise goes out. But the other interesting aspect was that you know, you had a, you had people who were so security focused, right? Because they work with the world's best organizations. I remember 
uh, without going into names, one of our admins came to me, our security engineers came to me and said, I use 220 or 212 character passwords on my Wi-Fi. You should increase your Wi-Fi passwords. <laughs> and I was like, I can't do that. And so there's a balance when you're at a, a security firm between understanding the business value, right? And ensuring that the business is lubricated and runs efficiently versus the amount of security you want to instill in an organization, right? A 200 plus character password may be sufficient or necessary for a military uh, installation or for something very, very like a bank account or something else. But for my Wi-Fi password at Sigital, it was probably overkill, right? I would have a lot of people really pissed off at me and leave. So that's just an example. I was always on my feet. The team was always on their feet. We were always challenged to do more, to do better. And uh, I think it, it wasn't like we could run to the executives as our parents and say, hey, help us. You know, these guys are attacking us. The executives would look at us and say, well, yeah, that's our job. We, we're in the business of doing security. So if our systems are not secure, how can we sell security? So I really enjoy that. And, and, and I think you have, to, you have to smile and take it all and, and talk to them. And they also appreciated our viewpoint and the fact that we enabled them to do their job as fast as possible with the right amount of security. So I have a fun story, and I don't even know if you remember this story, but if you do, I would love to get your perspective of what happened during this time. Okay. This was a phishing attack that I actually fell for, but it was a phishing exercise that you and the IT team were performing. Yeah. And I want to share this story because I think it shows you how even if you, you, know, you might be someone who is a security professional and has experience, you can still fall victim and how easy it is uh, to fall victim to this. So from what I recall of this phishing exercise was, it was exactly the same day that we had to all sign or kind of use our credentials to acknowledge that we had read the security policies for the company. Yep. And right after we had finished doing that, we got a second email that looked the same, had the same content, felt the same, had a link. It, the email came from our IT help desk, I believe. Yep. And when I clicked on it and I submitted my credentials, I got the email again and I IM'd you on Jabber saying, Roshan, something's wrong. I'm putting my credentials in, but I still keep getting the email asking me to accept that I have read and acknowledge that I've read the security policy. And you were very mean to me because you didn't say anything. You just probably were laughing on the other side on Jabber. I was. But I want to hear your perspective on what actually happened, if you can share a little bit more about that particular exercise. And it was definitely a very memorable thing for me because I fell victim. And ever since then, I was extra careful about everything I did. But I uh, would love to hear your perspective and, and any other insights you have to that story. It's very interesting. <laughs> First of all, that was awesome. Phishing security practitioners, the world's best security practitioners, and getting a 50 plus, 50% 50 plus response is like awesome. So first of all, yes, I 100% remember that story because we crafted that phishing exercise to be very, very mean, but really put people on their toes. As you said, we, we sent something out, people signed it, and we sent the second email out. It was actually an Amazon link, if you remember. If you hovered over it, it was not our internal link. It was an Amazon link, and it came from the same email address, and I think over 78% of people fell for it. And so a couple of lessons, right? The first thing is that security practitioners are not immune to phishing attacks, right? Sometimes, I don't know if it's an arrogance thing that we have. I don't know if it's the fact that we think we're better than the law, like we're above the law, like Judge Drudd says, I'm above the law, right? Like we, we, we're, we can't, we're immune to being hacked or compromised. 
But it was very interesting. And maybe it's a, it's an exercise in being curious, right? Security practitioners are curious people. And so that may be a reason why we did it. The other thing I learned was Scott Matsumoto, if you remember him, he said, Rashan, I will never trust any email that comes from you again. <laughs> and, I, and I thought about that for a long time. And I still think about that, that how do we as security practitioners create effective training campaigns without losing some level of trust? So two things were achieved. One thing is that had this been a real attack, it could have been a real attack. If if somebody had access to our email system, they would have known that this went out that day and they could have easily created the same exact email to go out and captured a large number of usernames and passwords, although we had multi-factor, so the risk was low to the company, but it could have been a real world scenario. And so it's not far from the norm that this is how an APT would work, right? An advanced persistent threat, although this wouldn't take months in planning, but it's not out of the ordinary to think this is feasible. It is feasible. The second thing I learned was that it's not a bad thing to keep people on their toes, even from internal emails, because I think people can be tricked easily from the evil that they know, right? From from so because your guard is down. When you get an email from outside nowadays, especially or at Sigital, there's an external banner, you look at a different domain name, et cetera, et cetera. So you're much more cautious in opening attachments, clicking on links. But if it comes from your friendly HR or your manager or your CEO, you're like, oh, great, click on it, right? You're click happy. I think the third lesson was it is important based on your user base because every company's user base is different. And from a business perspective, it's important to understand the user base and change the approach, have a dynamic approach, maybe not have a mistrust in the local, maybe have a signed signature email that goes out. And if something's not signed, then the alarm bells go off. There's a lot of lessons. As with many things in life, I think security is very circumstantial. Our security offerings, our testing, our training is very circumstantial based on the type of users we have, their cultural norms, their internal organizational cultural norms, right? Not just the geographic cultural, but also different organizations operate differently. If you remember at Sigital, we start we stopped sending links in emails just so people don't have to click on them. We would put spaces between HTTP colon slash slash and then put the, the URL afterwards. But you couldn't click on it. You had to paste it and then there was no way for someone to fish you or, or trick you. So I'll stop here. But that, we, I can go on for hours talking about the different ways we train people and what we learned from that exercise. It was awesome, though. I do want to elaborate on why we stopped sending full URLs or clickable URLs because the incident that we had after which we implemented that rule was actually on one of my projects. Oh, okay. I don't know if you recall that detail or not, but not going to get into details of the of the particular client. Right. But essentially, we had found a vulnerability that could, without any authentication, using a specific link, could shut down certain servers for this particular client. We put the vulnerability in a report, we put the link and we said, do not click, but we put the link in there as the exploit. So they knew how this could get exploited. And then I remember that one of the executives from that company was blowing up my phone. I picked up and they told me that I had messed something up. And I think we were looking at logs to see how this could have happened. But I think it happened because once I sent the report, the person who opened the report clicked on that link to see what it was going to do. So it wasn't something we did, but it was because of the link, the clickable link that we had included in the report that caused that problem. Oh, yeah. No, it's great stories. You know, brings back some some fun and stressful memories from, from back in the day.
Another thing I want to put on record is since you mentioned Scott Matsumoto, you know, I'm going to go on record here saying that I want Scott to be a guest on the podcast. So I'll be reaching out to him and I want him to listen to this podcast to see that I actually want him on as a guest on the podcast. So Roshan, let's talk a little bit about the role of the CISO. When you started MicroStrategy, I believe that was the first time you had the actual CISO role. Any insight you can share with us on what approaches you took to prioritize your focus when you started in that role? Yes. So before I started MicroStrategy as a CISO, I read the ISC Squared book uh, called CISO Leadership to understand the thought process behind the CISO and how the CISO is an effective security leader within an organization. And that helped me because that, that book was awesome because in the first part of it, it goes into what a CISO should be doing. And the second part of it provides some case-based scenarios and real-world scenarios of how CISOs dealt with different technology and security challenges. Some of the best advice I got were from people at Sigital, obviously, because we were very, very security focused. Sammy Miguez, who was our chief scientist back then, gave me some great advice. I remember sitting in his office. I told Sammy, I'm leaving. I'm going to be joining MicroStrategy as their CISO. And he said um, to me, you know, I can give you some advice on how to be a very effective CISO. And and he had worked with many CISOs from the financial institutions, healthcare, uh, government, et cetera. And I really valued his opinion. I said, go ahead, Sammy. And he said, you need to understand how the business makes money. That's the most important job of a CISO. If you can understand how the business makes money, then you are able to protect the business's critical assets and transactions. And that was very valuable feedback. And that's exactly what I did. When I came to MicroStrategy, I followed the guidance of my mentors. I also got a mentor, by the way. Samir Set is one of my mentors in the industry. He's a CISO at Whole Foods. And he was also a CISO at Aero Electronics and Mass Mutual. So I think in, it's important for CISOs, especially first-time CISOs, to have mentors, to understand the CISO role formally, look at real-world scenarios, but understand the business. It's really a business position. It's a, it's a business leadership position. It's not about the tooling. It's not about the firewalls. You're an IT business executive, and your job is to reduce company risk. And different companies, different organizations have different appetite for risk. And once you understand that, everything else will fall into place. To answer your second part of how I prioritize my focus, there were obviously some outstanding items that we needed to do, tasks that we need to complete, projects that needed completion. And we focused on those in the first three to four months. And uh, luckily, I had a great team uh, of individuals who were able to get our certifications, complete our projects. But while doing that, you have to take a step back and look at what the risks of the business are. How can you lubricate the business? How can you make the business move faster? For example, if you're getting hundreds of contracts per day and you have a 10 team of 10 people doing those things, it may be a sign that you need a certification such as a SOC 2, right? You may be able to reduce that by 90%. So your job as a CISO is to reduce risk, but it's also to enable the business to move faster, right? To, to reduce the friction of the business. And it's interesting because security is almost an inverse right, of being able to go fast. But we have made great strides in security in the last 10 to 15 years where you can have some level of transparent security, which still provides you a strong or adequate level of security, but it allows you to have a much more frictionless experience where things happen fast. I'll give you an example of that. If you think 15, 20 years ago, every application you went to, you had to sign in again. And if someone doesn't understand security, they would say, well, it's good that someone authenticates every single time to an application because then I know that that is who they are, right? I can prove their identity or I can uh, ascertain that they're who they are. 
But if you think about it from the opposite perspective, if you were to log in in the beginning of the day, and then for the next 24 or 22 hours, you were never prompted again and used some type of SSO or cash, you would actually know that you shouldn't be prompted again. Because every prompt for your credentials, you have to think as, am I getting compromised or is this a legitimate request? And so creating those type of experiences where there's a little bit of friction, but then it's really helping the user help you. A lot of people say, you know, the user base or people are your weakest link. Um, They can be, but also if you train them and you condition them, they can be your strongest assets in security. That's what I truly believe. No, that's really good insight. And because you mentioned them, it you know just so so we're on the record again both sammy and samir are people i want as guests here too i've actually been bugging samir over the last two months i know that he recently had a new addition to the family so he's been busy but but i'm gonna remind him again as this episode goes live that uh, he needs to to be a guest on this on this podcast now that's really helpful roshan and and really insightful and and the examples help really kind of solidify that that perspective i think a part of what you mentioned too, there's a lot of this focus today, especially in the AppSec perspective, right? That going from DevOps to DevSecOps, those are like the buzzwords, right? How do you make security frictionless as part of your you know, development processes um, throughout the organization? And recently I read somewhere that really resonated with me. It kind of took me back to the early days where initially we would say security is just a subset of quality. Right. If you think about it that way, like if you're doing quality correctly, security just goes along hand in hand. Similarly, I think if you're doing DevOps correctly, you shouldn't need DevSecOps. If you're doing DevOps correctly, secure should, security should be part of that process already. And that's a, that's a saying that kind of resonated with me. And what you just said just reminded me of that thought that security really needs to be frictionless and really needs to focus on, you know, how can you be secure while still enabling the business and enabling people to move ahead? So near the end of every conversation, Roshan, with all our guests, I like to ask them about something non-work related. So are there any particular hobbies of yours that you really enjoy that you'd like to share with our audience? I like, uh, I like walking. You know, I, I like taking strolls, uh, hiking. I love traveling, although with COVID, it has limited my travel capabilities. I love playing basketball with my children outside. So, you know, they're almost able to beat me now. So it's very interesting, right? As, as they're young and you're teaching them the moves and then they get to a point where they're more skilled than you and better than you. I'm still stronger than them, but they're, they're, they're faster and better, more skilled than I am. So I think soon they'll beat me. But, but Are you going to have some sort of a crisis when they start beating you or they start exceeding all of your skills and, and start showing you up? Absolutely not. I, I think the parent-child relationship is so beautiful that you know, I, I can't imagine any parent not wanting their children to be better than them, right? For those of us who may not have children, it's, it's maybe hard to grasp that. But when you have your own children, it's like, that's the glory, right? That's like, that's when you, when you know you made it, that they're better than you. And so uh, I always um, work towards that goal. Do you see parts of yourself in them? Are they equally intrigued and interested in things that you are or you are interested in at that age? I do. Uh, you know, I have, I have four children. And uh, I see different parts of me and my wife in each of them. There's no one direct correlation, one-to-one correlation. It's a subset of, of, of values and, and physical traits and, and, and character attributes, right, in each of them. So it's almost like a four-way hash. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a future CISO in the family from what you can tell so far? Uh, I can see one, yes, absolutely. <laughs> I my second son, I think I can see him as a future CISO. He's... Uh, 
building his own PC. He's very worried about risk and how to protect things and, and very vigilant about things. So I, I can see him being a future PSO. Absolutely. Well, that's fantastic, Roshan. Well, thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure and it's always fun uh, catching up. So hopefully once we get through all of this pandemic craziness, we can we can meet up in person and then hang out again. Nabil, the pleasure was all mine. Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. Take care, Roshan. Bye-bye. This has been an Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. Portions of this interview can be found in print on the NetSpy Executive blog. And please subscribe for future episodes of Agent of Influence at www.netspy.com slash agent of influence.